Please pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always pleasing in your sight, Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. It is Advent, a time of waiting for God to arrive and to come to us. And I don't know what you do while you wait. I think you can tell a lot about someone by what they do when they have to wait. Sometimes when it's nighttime and we're waiting to fall asleep, my husband Mike will say, tell me a story. And sometimes I'll say it, you know, to, to him. Hey, tell me a story. He's actually a much better storyteller than I am. He just kind of does it naturally, just knows how the story should go. I'm actually not that good at it. Even though I'm a writer and a storyteller, I have to think a long time to make sure that it comes out clearly and that all the pieces are in place. But this week, while we were waiting, while the lights were low and it was cold outside and the Christmas tree was lit, Mike pulled our fuzzy blanket up under his chin and he asked me to tell him a story. So I decided I would tell him one that I was working on for this Sunday. And it begins in an unlikely place, in the barren wilderness. Nothing is around as we see the scene from the sky. It's usually a silent place where the only sound heard is the screaming wind rushing by your tent flaps or racing over your ears as you wear that scarf around your head that also helps keep the blowing sand out of your nose and your mouth. But on this day, we see people gathering, a whole crowd of people, and they are beginning to form lines. I wonder what for. I wonder if this has anything to do with the military, because after all, the Jewish nation is being occupied by military force, and the Romans have taken over the cities and the towns. They have all the power. But this way, way out here, it's far beyond the coordinates and control of the empire. A man stands in a little wadi or stream calling out to the people in the desert, and he looks scraggly and kind of crazy. He's wearing camel's hair. I mean, his clothes look itchy and cumbersome and ill-fit, and he has a leather belt, and he is calling to the people, repent, for God's realm has come near. And the word he uses is metanoia, which means to change your heart, change your life. And we can see now why they are forming lines. They, are, they call this man John, and he is baptizing them one by one in the River Jordan. And you now understand what you're seeing. You've heard the stories at the temple. It's been over 400 years since we have heard a word, an utterance from God. The writings of the prophets ended with a mysterious prophet. They called him Malachi. Mysterious because we don't even know his real name. Malachi just simply means my messenger. Malachi described God promising he would send a messenger ahead of himself someday, and the messenger would reunite and purify all of Israel before the Lord's arrival, which he called the great and terrible day of our Lord. And this man in the camel's hair seems to be doing just that. John is using baptism, an immersive rite that is typically reserved for Gentile converts to Judaism to signify their comprehensive conversion. But John is calling on the children of Abraham to undergo this baptism too, as if to say, we all require conversion. Not just the Gentiles, all of us. We need to think differently for a new day, a new era is at hand. Change your minds, change your hearts, change your lives, because God is coming near. 
Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Purify yourselves. This is the word of God we have been waiting for. It could be. This man might be a prophet. Is he the messenger that God has sent? Has he raised up for us another Elijah in the wilderness? God seems to be on the move. And the dawn of a new era of redemption is at hand, heralded by Elijah's return, his arrival. What's he saying now? What was that? Oh, some of the temple leaders have shown up, and they are coming for baptism too. And to them, he says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children of God, children of Abraham. Wow, you brood of vipers. Newborn vipers were believed to eat through their mother's stomach, killing her. John is saying to them, you are destroying the very thing that gives you life. And as we hover over the scene, we have to wonder about that. As we end the scene, we feel a sense of foreboding. It's a sense of foreshadowing. No one can ever doubt that John the Baptist was a prophet. He told us in the very beginning of Matthew's gospel exactly what the temple leaders would do. Destroy the very one who brings life. What did you think about that story? It's a pretty good story, right? It's pretty dramatic. It has lots of great scenery, changes. And even though there's an odd man yelling, you brood of vipers, this story is going to be good. And it's going to bring good news. This year we'll read a lot of Matthew. So the first thing that you should know about Matthew is that it's a kind of story sermon meant to declare good news, or what we call the gospel, evangelon in ways that provoke the listener to read and reflect and to repent, to believe and to serve a wider world. In short, a gospel is a form of strategic storytelling that is meant to change your life. It aims to transform you by the end of hearing it. And we can tell what we're supposed to do, right? By what he yells at that brood of vipers. We are supposed to bear fruit just doing the ritual things like baptism, that's not enough. Or just changing your mind about God and what you believe about him, that's not enough. It is about your behaviors. It is about what we do. Do we live lives of repentance, lives that show that we think differently than the rest of the world around us? I was recently at a church planting conference, and there was a course on evangelism, and it was titled Reaching Your Neighbor. And so they broke us into small groups. You know how they do that adult education thing. You know, they talk for a little bit, and then they throw it to you and let you teach each other, which is really where all the important stuff happens. Really, anything useful that comes out of the conference is going to happen there. So they break us into the small groups, and here's the task they gave us. They said, uh, they gave us the prompt, best neighbor ever. And we were to tell stories of the best neighbor that we ever had. One guy had a whole neighborhood street. Uh, this was when he lived in D.C. And he didn't realize how great and rare it was that he loved his neighbors that much until they moved. And even after he moved to Texas, they go back every year for their neighborhood block party because they miss those people so much. Another of my classmates had a neighbor who had been her support person during a terrible illness. She had brought soup 
and done grocery shopping. She was God's hands and feet in the time of need. And I sat there thinking about what I could say. I mean, do I tell them about the time that I took one of our resurrection uh, prayer blankets, lovingly knit by some of our folks here, with a little resurrection tag on it, and I took it to my neighbor that I could see had just had a, a baby, and uh, she peered at me through the door like this. I could just see one side of her face. And I told her what it was and why I brought it. And she said, how did you know that I had a baby? As she reached out and took the blanket and never talked to me again. How do I tell that story? So I thought about, what am I going to say? On one side, we have a Christian family who attends Prestonwood. And the wife will visit me sometimes when we do our Ashes to Go station. Uh, during Lent, because the imposition of ashes is not something that her Baptist church does. So she likes to visit me for that. And her husband one time, when he saw that my son was out in front of our house, trying to change, he was struggling to change the tire on his car, he came out and he changed it in about five minutes flat. But the more that I sat there and I thought about it, I knew I had to tell the story of my other neighbor on the other side. Then I began the story. Well, the first thing you need to know about Abe is that he's an alcoholic. And that once during seminary finals in the dead of winter, I had to call an ambulance because Abe had stumbled outside barefoot to get his mail and had fallen down. He had one arm inside of his sweater that was on inside out anyway, and his feet were bare. He'd gotten his mail, and so it was strewn all over the lawn, and the wind was starting to blow it away. And I called an ambulance, and I went out there seeing what I could do because I thought he had a stroke. But the EMTs told me, no, he's just blind drunk. And at this point, the classmates uh, at this conference looked at me like, does she understand the, the assignment? What, what's going on here? I went on to say that previously, I had had to threaten Abe because he kept hiding his full bottles of liquor around in my yard so that his wife wouldn't find them and we'd find them in our bushes. Um, and I had a 10-year-old son and all the neighborhood boys would come over to our house to play. So I had to threaten to call the police on him. And when I started the church, he figured out that I was a religious person and might be somebody who could help him. And so he asked to have a meeting. And so we met in my living room. And I asked what he wanted. And he said he wanted to be closer to God. And to make a very long conversation short, I told him that there would have to be change. You can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. That's the definition of insanity. That getting close to God isn't something that you earn by works, but it's kind of like getting your house ready for the maids to come. <laughs> you straighten up so that they can clean up. You prepare the way for them by stacking your books and papers, putting the dishes in the sink, washing the bed sheets. You clean up and get ready so that they can come in and really clean and set things right. And we talked about the Gospel of Matthew how he wrote his Sermon on the Mount is kind of like the rungs of a ladder. And the very first step is, blessed are the poor in spirit. You're going to have to give up your pride. Sadly, Abe got up, and he went away sad. He told me that he couldn't change, and that as an Indian man, pride was just part of his culture, which I knew that's not true but it seemed to him like an obstacle too high to climb. A few months later, another of our neighbors died. Abe walked around to each house, knocking on the door, to spread the news and to ask people 
to come to the service. He wasn't friends with a neighbor. He just knew that that was a good and Christian thing to do, to tell them they had lost a neighbor and help them acknowledge that loss and to not let that family be alone. So my husband and I, we attended that funeral. Fruit in keeping with repentance. That's the important thing. And everyone can bear fruit, even as we struggle to be better, to be purified. I think Abe is my favorite neighbor because he reminds me that change is possible, even when we think it isn't. The season of Advent reminds us that even in our darkest times, God comes to change our minds and to sanctify us and to make us pure. He transforms us. So let's get ready and let's straighten up so he can clean up. There is a voice in the wilderness crying to each of us. And it says that God is near and that he is coming so that we can have peace. Let us pray. Merciful God, who sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation, give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.